Hi, everybody. This is Vincent Downing, interviewing tonight Ann Clayson. This is under the auspices of When Humanists Attack, a show being put on by a humanist organization, Humanist Being. We are a 501c3 incorporated in the state of Vermont. And we are here tonight discuss humanism in general, how humanism or secular humanism differs from ethical culture, which is something that's of a great deal of interest to us at uh, a humanist uh, being. And, uh, uh, but I, Anne actually knows a great deal more uh, than about that. Anne, if I had looked at all of your credentials sooner uh, than earlier today, I might have been too intimidated to, to ask you here. Uh, but you know, Vincent, you know, you get old enough and, and it just, it just you know, stacks up. But Yes, ma'am. Um, <laughs> so uh, could you uh, briefly uh, give our audience uh, a rundown of your credentials and then I'd like to start off with uh, some information about you personally and your uh, earlier years and your journey towards all these credentials and then we can get into some of the more uh, cerebral stuff. Okay, sounds good to me. So um, hello everyone, uh, my name is Ann Clayson and um, I am the leader emerita of the New York Society for Ethical Culture. That just means that I retired a year and a half ago. <laughs> um, I served the New York Society congregation for about a dozen years. And before that, I was the clergy leader of the Ethical Humanist Society of Long Island. And long before that, um, when I was married uh, to my husband, Glenn Newman, way back in 1982, uh, we were married at the Brooklyn Society for Ethical Culture. And we raised our two children there, Andrew and Emily. So um, I, that's my spiritual home uh, of the Brooklyn Society for Ethical Culture. And that's where I, I learned about ethical culture. And whereas my children got older and I was wondering about how I was going to spend the rest of my life when they no longer needed me, um, I decided to look into uh, training to become an ethical culture leader. And so that's what I did. Uh, and I'm now certified by the American Ethical Union, which is a religious humanist organization. Um, and I'm also a member of the American Humanist Association, which is a secular humanist organization. And proud to say that my daughter, Emily, is working with the Center for Education at the AHA um, in a oh, communications wow. role. So um, that's, yeah. And, and I guess my other credentials are, um, I, I have two master's degrees, one in German uh, from SUNY at Albany. I spent two years in Würzburg, Germany. I also have an MBA from NYU. Um, and that's because my master's in German uh, did not get me a job. And so I had to get an MBA in order to get a job. Okay. <laughs> So uh, I, I worked for many years in uh, in city government, and then uh, you know I took off time when my children were young and became more active at, at the Brooklyn Society. And then, as I said, when I decided to train for clergy leadership, 
um, I decided to get a doctor of ministry in pastoral counseling and pastoral care because that was the part of my training that mm. really resonated with me the most. And so okay. um, I was just really loved that program. It was an interfaith program um, uh -huh. at Hebrew Union College. So my classmates were priests, nuns, ministers, rabbis. Um, and what we learned was that all religious organizations have the same problems. <laughs> yeah. that human beings are human beings everywhere um, with the same dynamics. And so that brought the anxiety level down a lot um, in my training to be able to look at you know, congregations and, and any community group, any group of people and saying, okay, let's take that deep cleansing breath and see what's happening <laughs> here. <laughs> what's going on? Always, always, you know, and, and oh, I should also mention that I'm also the, um, uh, at Columbia University, I'm the ethical humanist religious life advisor, and at NYU, I'm the spiritual life advisor, and I've been doing more pastoral counseling there in this over a year of COVID-19, um, because, you know, students who, you know, social, well, socializing is an important part of all of our lives, unless you're a severe introvert. Um, but uh, for students in particular, and, and they really have been grieving the loss of social contact. So, um, you know, I, I, I've been interacting with hmm. them in different ways and doing more pastoral counseling. And, uh, you know, one of the things, the first things I ask the students now um, is about breath. You know, the first thing I ask them when we're, we're getting together and I said, tell me how you're breathing. Where, where is your breath right now? Where do you feel it? Um, it's just that, you know, that initial check-in. Um, so I'm all ready for your questions now. Vincent. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's part a bit of, uh, of experience with a whole lot of stuff that uh, all of us look certainly uh, I would like to learn more about. Um, I mean, <clears throat> I've just been uh, certified as a humanist celebrant mm -hmm. um, by the uh, Humanist Society, which is the, the sister organization to the AHA. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing due diligence about what that might mean. Right. Uh, at this point in time, um, uh, me and the other folks who started the humanist being are, in a way, restarting work that we began in the 90s with an organization, a uh, religious organization called A Temple of the Apotheosis, which was a humanist organization even though that didn't really exist, the term as uh, a part of our vocabulary at the time. Right, right. And we were doing our best to be uh, uh, presences for all these folks. Um, you know, not therapists in any way. Of course, you, you, you... that's a, a different wheelhouse. Um, and now we're kind of taking this up again mm -hmm. and 
learning about these roles uh, in a humanist community is very important to us because uh, what is that so I guess we're going to shoot ahead for a moment skip over some of your early years stuff right now that's fine what, with me <laughs> what do we do yeah. as uh, just you know in my case just somebody who wants to help build the movement in your case somebody who's a, a clergy leader what what is our role in in these in these communities that we want to well, it's, it's very interesting to me that one of the roles that you've decided to take on is as a humanist celebrant. So you have certainly met my daughter, Emily Newman, who mm -hmm. works, who also works with the Humanist Society. And, um, and I, I know that they're lining up um, a life, a humanist life passages, ceremonies, a training for me to do. I've done several of them. Um, and I think they're lining up another program for me to do. Um, I've also given training uh, at Union Theological Seminary. Um, and, and I think what, one of the things that I've learned um, in doing these humanist life passage ceremonies is how many people will come up to me afterwards and say, so that's what it is. That's what humanism is. I think I'm a humanist. Um, it's, it's not unusual for someone at a memorial service, for example, to say to me, that is the most spiritual service I've ever attended, and you never mentioned God. Um, and so I think it's one of the roles that we play, Vincent, I think, when we are these celebrants and we're out in the world doing that, is we give people an opportunity to see what humanism is like in the context of those life passage ceremonies. I say that we're there from womb to tomb you know, uh, a, a baby naming, coming of age, weddings, memorials, you know, we're there. And what we do so well is to meet people where they are, to have a conversation, hmm. to listen deeply about where people are, hmm. whether it's a couple or a family, a child, um, you know, to really listen um, and to ask, you know, what's important to you? What are your values? And I think when we do that, we're helping people to redefine what it means to be spiritual. I mean, we, we've had this conversation before about the Pew Forum's research into into the yeah. NONS, the N-O-N-E-S, and the S-B-N-R, the spiritual but not religious. Um, and, you know, what we're realizing is that uh, more and more Americans um, are no longer affiliating with organized religion. They're experiencing themselves as spiritual outside of a traditional religion. And so I think, you know, what we humanists have to offer um, are not only the life passage ceremonies, but just another, another way of organizing ourselves and to say, you know, check us out. You know, we're here, we're available. Um, and, and yet, I also think we have a great deal that we can still learn from traditional religions. Um, just uh, uh, last weekend, I participated in the Revolutionary Love Conference, which was hosted by Middle Collegiate Church. And many of us humanists participated. And the feedback I heard from people was, wow, 
many of these folks identify as Christian, but they sound so humanist to me. And so I think the lessons that we have to learn from those who make a seat for humanists at their table um, is that they have ways of communicating that we can learn more about, um, especially in storytelling, mm. you know, especially in you know, not being too cerebral, you know, not using the $20 words all the time, um, but again, meeting people where they are. No, that, that does seem to be a, uh, a reasonable critique of humanism as I've experienced it, uh, a bit too cerebral and maybe not necessarily appreciative of the uh, poetic or metaphorical yeah. storytelling. Look, I am very critical of religion myself as a queer guy who grew up among the Catholics, an organization that certainly at the time was not teaching anything good about people like me. And as a... Uh, the scapegoat. Certainly the men in the community. And this was all... You know, it took me a long time, and that, that, that's a conversation we'll have at another point, to understand the, you know, the uh, why people would need a scapegoat like that to such an extent. But even so, I can bring myself to near tears uh, reading about the nativity scene mm. or something like that. And but where how to put this? What how, where, how? Yes. So we can have each other seated. We can be seated at the same table, sup from the same dishes, at least some of them. Um, but where? How do we move everybody ahead? I guess my uh, is is the the tactical religion seems to me that its its purpose is to act as a, a solidifying force in a society. You know, as a conservative thing, usually. Um, so how do we get those folks to move ahead and help them preserve the good parts right. of their? mean plex or system or tradition or however you want to put it well yeah you've reached, you've raised so many good questions vincent thank you um i'd like to sort of come back to a definition of humanism if i may um, please and, and i think uh, uh, right. i think you know there's there's this big tent i sort of i sort of go like this with my hands uh, to, to, to sort of illustrate a big tent or umbrella or whatever that we call humanism and under that are a lot of different people with a lot of different adjectives before humanism. So, um, so for example, I, I, religious humanism, and that's with so ethical culture or ethical humanism. The American Ethical mm. Union identifies as religious humanists, and that's primarily because of the way that we organize ourselves. We organize ourselves in congregations. Um, we have, as I said before, the life passage ceremonies. Um, we also, you know, more often than not, we'll gather on a Sunday morning and have a program. I, I, we refer to it as a Sunday platform address, but it's also what other traditions would call a sermon. 
Um, so there are a lot of aspects of it that, that are religious in terms of, of how we organize ourselves and how we express ourselves. Um, the American humanist, oh, and I, I should add that under religious humanism is not only ethical culture or ethical humanism with the national organization of the American Ethical Union, but also quite a number of Unitarian Universalists. And so there are, in fact, uh, a dear friend and colleague, David Breeden, is the minister at the First Unitarian Church or Society Fellowship in Minneapolis. And that is every bit an ethical culture society. Hmm. So there are many Unitarian Universalists and Unitarian Universalists. That's a whole other history, mm, the UUN. Right, right. But there are many of them who identify as humanists. So there's a lot of overlap there. There are also some groups um, called Oasis. And I, I would you know, recommend that you take a look at them, spelled like you know, the respite in the desert, Oasis. Um, and these are also, they may not be call themselves explicitly humanist. However, they are non-theistic communities that serve a lot of the same uh, needs that we serve as ethical societies. So there's that piece, people who may or may not call themselves religious humanists, but in terms of the way they organize themselves. And they may use some of the vocabulary. For example, I, I don't hesitate to use the word spiritual, but I also define it as this worldly. I define it as something I, I, I experience as a connection to other people and to nature. It does not have an otherworldly aspect for me. So I think another thing that we do mm. is we define our terms over and over again. Um, now, the AHA, the American Humanist Association, organizes itself in chapters, and they, they are secular humanists. And so they, they, with the exception of the Humanist Society, which, as you know, certifies celebrants. So they, they take on some, some role as that. It's a little schizophrenic, I think. But at any rate, um, so the secular humanists kind of do that. Um, I think what's interesting too is both the AHA and the AEU belong to an international humanist group. And that's a very interesting. In fact, um, the, the AEU uh, helped to found that international humanist, humanist group in Amsterdam back in 1952. So oh, humanism okay. internationally has many different expressions. Um, and I'll give you some examples. Um, in India, for example, where they have had so much sectarian violence, they take great care to define humanism as secular only. They do not want to get into any kind of notion that humanism might be religious and get mixed up in all of that. Mm. So in, in India, you will find humanism is strictly secular. Um, uh, a year and a half ago, I uh, hosted a symposium on humanism at, uh, at uh, the New York Society. And we had four humanists from the Humanist University in Utrecht in the Netherlands and four American humanists, some religious and some secular humanists. And we got together in, and, and shared our papers and, and held this symposium. What was interesting to the Dutch humanists was not only how we have organized ourselves in humanist congregations, which they haven't done, but also how the secular humanists had as an important part of their platform, science and facts. Um, because, and, and we explained to them that that's because in the United States, 
where there is still such a strong evangelical and fundamentalist Christian population um, and still uh, trying to separate church and state that we still have people who do not believe in evolution um, and, and all those things so that part of the humanist agenda in the United States must include science because we have that tension with more traditional religious groups who are unscientific. Whereas in the Netherlands where science is, of course, <laughs> um, you know, they're, 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 the Humanist University in Utrecht is devoting more of its research, resources and research into how to make life more compassionate. So we, we had people who had done work with the elderly and, and how can we serve them better? It was almost more of a, of a social work emphasis, whereas in the United States, we, can, we take more of a social justice emphasis and more of a pro-science emphasis. So I, I, I give that in this example to show that around the globe, humanism will have different expressions depending upon the tensions, the challenges, and the needs in that particular country. That's, uh, I, I honestly just never given it enough thought, but that seems perfectly natural uh, given the situation. But, uh, okay, in terms of, uh, I mean, I've been an ethical culturist now for what, almost seven years, and I've never heard anybody talk about uh, God. Mm -hmm. uh, being important to what's going on or uh, faith mm -hmm. for that matter so i don't think uh, I, I don't understand the even the the demarcation between uh secular or religious humanists given yeah. that yeah i mean to, yeah. To, to, to to finish the thought i've looked at the, the mm -hmm. eight commitments uh, well, well culture that, that's something and, that Lois Kellerman put together. It's not the eight commitments. Um, Lois Kellerman's yes, yes. expression of what she, and, and we're very careful with that, I have to say, in the same way that our founder, Felix Adler, uh, who founded Ethical Culture back in 1876, wrote something, uh, wrote his philosophical autobiography, and he called it an ethical philosophy of life not the, I think articles are very important. And, and, and in sure. his philosophical autobiography and ethical philosophy of life is an invitation for all of us to explore what's important to us. You know, what philosophies are important, uh, what values are. Um, and so if, if I may take you back to our founding story, uh, back in 1876, Felix Adler was the uh, second oldest son um, in a family of reformed Jews. His father, Samuel, was, and the whole family were brought to the United States from Germany by Temple Emanuel, a reformed temple in Manhattan. Hmm. And they, they brought him over um, and reformed Judaism was fairly new. And they were hopeful that Felix would become sort of their own homegrown American English-speaking reformed rabbi, that he would take his father's place there. So um, he studied, uh, he went back to Germany to study for the rabbinate. And while he was there, he experienced, you know, what so many of us do who leave our, our, the family nest and go away. 
um, and he experienced a kind of a cognitive dissonance between what he had been taught growing up and what he was learning in Germany. Um, now he was both in Berlin and Heidelberg. His older brother was studying to be a doctor in Heidelberg, um, but he didn't, what he was learning was that in, in Germany, something called uh, a, a biblical criticism, a literary criticism of the Bible, showing that there were many different narratives and many different voices, that shook him up a little bit. Oh, you mean the Torah wasn't written by Moses? Do you mean it wasn't? So as he's oh. you know, taking this in, he's saying, well, if that's not the case, and clearly it's not the case, the, 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 you know, the Torah is a compilation of many different texts put together while the Jewish people were in exile. It was, it was a means of holding them together as a people. Okay, now where do I go? And so what he did, Adler did, was he turned to philosophy. And he, he, he particularly loved Immanuel Kant with his categorical, categorical imperative um, that I am and that we are all ends unto ourselves and not a means to someone else's end. So he liked that morality. He was kind of looking around to say, okay, if the narrative that I grew up learning isn't accurate, then what do I base morality on? And so he looked for that in philosophy. And that was be the beginning of his search for it. Well, he came back home in 1873. Um, he gave his first and last sermon at Temple Emmanuel because he started to explore some of these ideas. His sermon was not a homiletic on the text. It was rather a call to how can Reformed Judaism take this a step farther? How can we not stick with the text of the old? How can we be more socially relevant? How can we take care of our brothers and sisters here in New York City, which is now flooded with a lot of immigrants? What can we do in the marketplace? So he kind of exhorted them in a way that they didn't like. It wasn't uncomfortable for them. And he never mentioned God. So the board of trustees had a meeting with him and said, you know, we're a little concerned. You're clearly brilliant, but we're a little worried. God, can you tell us, do you believe in God? And young Felix, you know, he was like 22. He said, you know, now that you come to mention it, I really don't believe in a God. And I'm really developing all these other philosophical ideas. So they said, okay, we got it. Um, you're not gonna take over your father's place here. What else do you think you might do? <laughs> so a, a couple of years later, he started um, a non-theistic religion of ethics on February 15th, 1876. Um, some of his friends, members of Temple Emmanuel, actually young men, um, rented Standard Hall and he gave his, his first address, his first founding address. Believe or disbelieve as ye list, but be one with us on the common ground of ethics. So he started what Ralph Waldo Emerson actually had referred to years earlier as a church of ethics. So that, that's our founding. It's, it's, it's a non-theistic, not atheistic, but non-theistic religion of ethics. Um, and, you know, as he said, um, you know, it, you know it, it's a religion for those for whom it's a religion. It's not for those for whom it's not. But let us together create a culture of ethics. So, um, yeah. Something. That's, that's story. <laughs> I mean something that we were ourselves trying to do 
as far back as the early 90s mm -hmm. uh, yeah. um, without having it as well articulated as <laughs> Felix, uh, <laughs> of course. Mm. Well, um, you know, interestingly enough, Vincent, th these, these, uh, these ideas are out there. They're floating out there. So you were developing these ideas in the 90s. Right, in in right. 1920, John Dietrich, who was a Unitarian minister, he was developing these ideas too. And at the first Unitarian church in Minneapolis, he's actually called the father of religious humanism. John Dietrich started preaching in the Unitarian, the first Unitarian in Minneapolis, what came to what became to known as, as humanism. And part of that came out of saying, we, we can't continue to hold these theistic beliefs that contradict science. It doesn't make sense. Mm. And yet we feel um, an impulse or a, a need to gather together in community to do good things in the world. So how do we articulate that? What do we do about that? Um, and so while Felix Adler was doing, starting out in 1876, the Unitarians were doing that in 1920. Um, so these things, good ideas spring up all over the place with different groups of people. And it's wonderful when we can, we can all get together and share them. Well, sharing them and hopefully promulgating uh, them time during the course of this interview talk about how we can help nurture and cause these communities with this kind of ethical and uh, intellectual base to grow mm -hmm. um you know i think i was said to you earlier in the week you know, why aren't there half a million ethical culturalists surely if the United States of America needs ethical culture and humanism at any point in its history. It's now teetering on the brink of some abyss, whatever, <laughs> abyss, abyss eye. What is the plural of abyss? You know, I this mean, is... how many can you have? But I, just... before we go any further, religion. So why, why even use the word? It, it, no. I'm not, yeah. You know, I always say, Please read past the first definition. Religion is not only the belief in and worship of a supernatural deity. That's only one definition. There are so many other definitions. One of my favorite theologians is Paul Tillich. And he said, religion is one's ultimate concern. My ultimate concern is ethics. And the way that I express it is in religious humanism. Now, it may also be a generational thing. Um, I was raised Catholic. My husband was raised Jewish. Um, we found the Brooklyn Society as a place to marry and to raise our children. So it could be a generational thing that I have. I, and and I, my, hmm. growing, my growing up at, at St. Anne's in Palmyra, New York, birthplace, by the way, of Mormonism, <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, was, was very, very gentle and kind and loving. So I fortunately did not experience the damage and the wounding that you and millions of others did uh, by the Catholic Church. And, and, I, and I do recognize how fortunate I was in that. Um, my, my uncle, who was also my godfather, was a Catholic priest. Um, and so I, I experience it differently, but I'm very, very critical of it. Um, I stopped identifying as a Catholic uh, when I was a freshman in college, although I really 
uh, loved the Interfaith Center at SUNY Albany, and I actually worked there because I really, and I think part of it too is that when I was um, a junior and senior in high school um, and belonged to the Catholic Youth Organization, we were going through, I'll be 70 next month, just, so we were going through the Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council and Ecumenicalism. Mm. And so there was a kind of a blossoming and an opening up um, in ways and not just having guitars at the mass, but I mean, there was, it, it, it was an important step forward that I found very hopeful. Um, not enough to keep me in the fold, mind you, but I, one of my dearest friends from my, from my childhood um, is, is a Catholic nun. And she and I have more in common with each other than we do with many of our other childhood friends. Um, and I think part of it is because um, she, as a Catholic nun, was always, her, her order uh, out of the Rochester, New York diocese was always very progressive. Um, and so there is, so I, I'm appreciative whether it's the worker priests in Latin America, or whether it's the you know the nuns on the bus, or people like my dear childhood friend, um, or the Berrigan brothers, you know, who, in the Vietnam War, I, I see you know different individuals mm. who have pushed that social justice agenda, um, and who are open and welcoming and embracing, and that's not to take away at all because I, I do feel compassion for and understand as I say, the millions who have been seriously wounded um, and, and suffered greatly at the hands of, of not only the Catholic Church, but we know other, other religions as well. The, the capacity for harm is tremendous. Um, and I think we must always critique that, must always critique that. So, um, but you know, about why a religion, at both the Long Island and New York societies where I served as clergy leader, I always knew that something was rumbling when somebody would say, now, why are we a religion again? And I go, oh no, something else is going on. We've had this conversation so many times. So at one of the um, Sunday platform addresses at the New York society, I interviewed my dear friend and colleague, Joe Schumann. And he, I interviewed him in the persona of Felix Adler. And so one of the questions mm. I put to Joe, AKA Dr. Dr. Adler mm. was, why did you leave the question of religion so open? It's been driving us crazy since 1876. And so you know, Joe reminded us of what Felix Adler said. Um, it's a religion for those for, for whom religion is important. And it's not for those for whom it's not. And I think, you know, and what's most important, and again, you know, I'm sure you know that one of our many sayings is deed above creed. Or yes. deed yeah. over creed. In fact, at the New York Society in the lobby, as you make a right to go towards the elevators, it says deed before creed or deed above creed. And so the emphasis has often been that, you know, belief can be a serious distraction from the one's values. Um, and, and I find that religion at its worst, and you know who does a wonderful critique of this is Philip Kitcher. Um, he's a professor at Columbia and he, he participated in that symposium I mentioned earlier, hmm. the Humanist Symposium. And, and his critique is always that we have responsibility to critique religion when it puts the emphasis on belief 
overt behavior. And, and he sees that more mm. traditions are coming to terms with that and are becoming or issuing or writing apologia, you know, in that sense of sort of like trying to reinterpret the text for modern times, recognizing that uh, it'd be when you're stuck, you know, recognizing when were these scriptures, texts, when were they written? What were the social needs at that time? Do they really right. apply today? The answer is no, many of them don't. Um, but the critique is, and you'll hmm. see that many, uh, you know, many, I, my husband often likes to say that there's a spectrum of religion. At one end is very fundamentalist, and at the other end, or literal, and at the other end is very humanistic. So my experience in interfaith settings, whether it's at Columbia or NYU or the Interfaith Assembly on Homelessness and Affordable Housing, these other social justice groups, what my experience is that when a, a traditional religion operates at more the humanistic end, they are aware of their beliefs, but they also put the emphasis on the behavior and on social justice. Um, and I frankly feel sorry for them in a way, because I feel like they have to twist themselves into theological pretzels. Oh, yeah. Every Sunday morning. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, a few years ago at an AHA conference, mm. um, John Spung, who's a retired uh, Episcopalian bishop, was, was one of the keynote speakers at, the, at, the, at the, the conference. And he was delightful. He could have a second career as a stand-up comic. But what he said is, he said, I'm so happy to be here with you humanists. And he said, and I can tell you, I have never had a death threat from a humanist. All the death threats I get are from Christians. Because as an Episcopalian bishop who interprets the scripture um, in the way that it was, you know, he, he's learned a lot from Jewish scholars oh, yeah. about how to interpret it. He is considered a heretic. Yeah. <laughs> Some people on a fundamentalist spectrum, heresy and blasphemy are the worst sins. But at a humanistic end of the spectrum, there's much more compassion, understanding, and devotion to social justice. Uh, there's a lot less mistaking the map for the territory. Hmm. Is another way. Or less of mistaking the menu for the meal. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've heard it put um, that uh, you're looking at more closely at what the hell people are doing mm -hmm. than, you know, what people are believing about hell, uh, for example. And that's why we say that, you know, people, we, look, we all have beliefs, but what, how are we behaving? How do those beliefs get translated into behavior? Mm -hmm. um, and so for those people who hold these beliefs and behave, whether it's, uh, you know, look, whether it's stoning someone, you know, I mean, look, in some countries, blasphemy is still a state crime and they can be put to death for that. Um, and, and humanists in those countries have, uh, boy, they have some task ahead of them. <laughs> a hard, a hard road to hold. Yeah. But I guess the only other question I would have regarding, you know, okay, why a religion is that I associate religion with faith. And I don't 
associate humanism with yeah, see, I do. Yes. I, I have to tell yeah. you, Vincent, I do. Um, because I have a faith in the capacity of humans to behave ethically. And that faith is sorely tested every day. And yet my, my faith really is in that capacity for goodness. Mm. And you know, the ethical culture, supreme ethical rule articulated in different ways by Adler, but, and I find it to be far superior to the golden rule. Of course, the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, which to me, and not to be too flip here, I think sounds kind of passive aggressive because it, it assumes that I, I know what's best for you just, just because it would be good for me. What I really appreciate about Felix Adler's, what he calls supreme ethical rule, he says, act in ways that elicit the goodness in others and thereby in yourself. And he articulated in different ways through all of his writings. Another really good way, and I guess this, the next thing I'm gonna say is something that was picked up on um, at a panel I was on at Jewish Theological Seminary. They really liked this piece a lot. And that is, he said, act in ways that brings out the unique differences in others mm. and thereby in yourself. Adler's philosophy, albeit somewhat archaic, in fact, in our, in our training, we, we say there's a module that's called from ethical idealism to ethical humanism. He was philosophically an idealist with a capital R. Um, and that partly had to do with his love for the philosopher Immanuel Kant. He liked the New England transcendentalists. So he actually mm. believed that there was a transcendent realm of ideas and of values. And actually that appealed to his sense of Jewish, having been raised Jewish about a universal moral law. Well, as humanists, we, necessarily, we don't really believe, not only do we not believe in a supernatural, you know, many of us you know, don't, either don't also believe in a transcendental realm, except poetically and metaphorically. Uh, but my point here is that he was sort of looking, looking at um, what the transcendentalists were doing. So Ralph Waldo Emerson often wrote about the oversoul and the oversoul, it, it was an ideal for him that was a kind of a unity. How can we all come together as one? And Felix Adler's critique of that was, but then it sort of makes us all the same and we're not all the same. So the term that he used was ethical manifold or organic ideal mm. and what he and this is where i think we have a lot of potential and this is what the seminarians in that panel discussion really honed in on and i think it has a lot of potential for us moving forward vincent and that is that notion of diversity that we are all unique um and and, and we and that we we it's important that we share with one another those uniquenesses, those differences, because when we do that, it makes for a better whole. It makes for that organic ideal comprised of all these differences that make us unique. Um, and you know, we said, you know, so often we can feel insignificant in this vast universe, but if we think of ourselves as being unique beings, different from all others, with our own gifts and our own talents and our inherent worth and dignity, then we can connect with other people. And we can connect in a way that's an invitation 
to elicit that goodness, the unique difference, that otherness in other people. And you know, in all the anti-racist work that we're doing now at the American Ethical Union, we hear about othering and others so much. To have a philosophy that actually values those distinct differences and that otherness and makes it a core component of our philosophy, I think that has a lot to offer. And as far as our strategy, I think we need to articulate that a whole lot better than we do. Hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm following you through all of this, I think, uh, to my own satisfaction. Who knows if you were to give me an exam, if it would be to your satisfaction. <laughs> Well, we'll um, have many more conversations, Vincent, many. <laughs> I, I would hope so. The, the, the first question that comes to my mind is, okay, but what, what do we mean by faith here? Because when yep. you say that's I have right. faith That's right, that's right, good question. In a capacity. The right question. Good, which is sorely tested every day. That seems to me to be more like confidence than what I would think of as faith. I mean, for me, faith is when somebody's pretending to know stuff that they couldn't possibly know. Like, yes, there is a God, and he is, he's an old white man, you know, he, <laughs> and sitting a cloud on a throne, and he wants you to snip the foreskins off of your male children, and he has all this other stuff that he wants us to do. So now that you got to have faith for that. I think you're raising a very important point here, Vincent, and it's, it gets back to something I said before about uh, vocabulary and language and what right. we mean by the words that we use. And I think it's so very important that when we're in a conversation with somebody and some kind of a discussion that we ask someone with respectful curiosity and interest, Hmm, I heard you use a word just now, and I'm wondering how you mean it. Because here's how I mean it, but I, I think you may mean something else. Could you tell me more about that? So I think the danger comes in when we hear a word like faith and we assume that it means something for someone and then maybe shut down that conversation rather than opening up the window and saying, gosh, I find that interesting. Could you tell me more about that? Could you share some of the experiences that you've had? And then if you'd like, I would be happy to tell you my experiences. I think it's about living in the conversation and having that, making that, that connection. And look, we're going to make judgments. We all make judgments all the time. Sure. But if we can make a decision, just like we take that deep cleansing breath, if we can make the decision to set that judgment over here and to say, okay, I have this judgment, but I'm going to listen now with an open mind and an open heart. I wonder what I might hear. And I wonder what the, this person might be interesting to hear from me. To me, that's humanism. Well, it certainly is the first step of uh, a well-executed Socratic dialogue, you know, uh, whether or not that's, uh, uh, and if that's humanism, I'm all for it. Yeah. Um, well, 
it's, it's interesting that you mentioned Socratic dialogue. Um, so you, you know the Center for Education at the, at the American Humanist Association. It was predated by something called the Humanist Institute, which was founded by a now extinct organization called the North American Committee on Humanism. So NACH, the North American Committee on, on Humanism, realized that they needed to be training humans leaders. So this at that time was like kind of the question that you're asking now. How do we organize ourselves? How are we effective? How do we train people? So they started the Humanist Institute and they used that Socratic method. And it served the Humanist Institute very well for many years. I engaged in a three-year seminar program there. I then became a co-mentor with Dr. Anthony Pinn in another three-year uh, program, seminar program. And then I partnered with Dr. David Breeden, um, who's the minister at First Unitarian. But at a certain point, we realized that the Socratic method, which is highly intellectual, does not work for everyone. And so if we're going to be more open and compassionate and understanding and inviting and welcoming, then we need to rethink the methods that we use. So I, I love the Socratic method and I think many people flourish under it, but the Center for Education now, which is the former Humanist Institute at the AHA, uh, has been doing through, a, and I'm on their advisory council, um, has been exploring a lot of different ways with different techniques and different strategies so that we're not locked into one particular mode that may exclude other people who we would wish to include. Well, that, okay. Well, I mean, yeah, there's certainly always room to develop and improve uh. the Socratic method or any of these intellectual tools that we uh, that were handed by the big people we stand on the shoulders of yes. <laughs> um, so faith uh, what give me another definition let's double check this one because this one is big this is kind of like the well, I think, it's, I think it's very personal. I mean, I, it's very personal to me. Um, and it's something that helps me. It does sound like you mean when I am confidence there. Yeah. caught up in um, situations where I can feel triggered or uncomfortable. Um, I just hmm. remind myself, this person is, is exhibiting behavior that... I'm uncomfortable with, that I actually judge to be unethical. And yet I'm going to go back to my faith, which is personal and particular to me and say, I believe irrationally, <laughs> I believe this person has the capacity for goodness. And so I need to check my behavior and how I'm interacting um, with the intention of eliciting that goodness, that distinctive otherness, um, that uniqueness. And you know what? I may fail, but I, I have that irrational hope and what I call faith that it's possible. That it's possible. It doesn't um, mean somebody else uh, would not be able to succeed under 
different circumstances. Oh, of course. No, um, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, to veer into a piece of autobiography uh, where my understanding of this originated was um, nothing so grandiose as Kant. Uh, I remember sneaking down in the morning, uh, very early before anybody in my family was up. This was in the mid-1960s. Uh, I think I was four or five. Uh, and watching this um, documentary about World War II mm. in black and white, of course, um, and seeing all of, you know, about what this, this evil man, Hitler, and all of the, just the, the atrocities of the of the, the concentration camps and all of this other stuff. And, uh, but then at one point they showed footage of Hitler being nice to his dog. And I don't know why, but I was watching this and I remember thinking that this was, I didn't understand this because this was the bad man that daddy and grandpa and everybody else had, were saying was so evil, mm -hmm. but that it was very important to note that he was nice to his dog. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, where my understanding of that grew out of. Yeah. Uh, and if I hear, you know, if I'm, I'll just remind myself every once in a while, particularly when I'm just like infuriated at some, some, craziness what seems to me to be craziness and i'll just say yeah but you know even hitler was nice to his german shepherd <laughs> <laughs> and that'll distract me for a few critical moments and let me you know cool off yeah, right. um yeah, yeah that i mean four yeah. years old and and uh just uh that was one of the, the things out of that whole experience that, that was one of the most important things is to understand that evil, even evil people uh, have some good in them. Well, and it's also important to stand up to that, to be a witness to it, to stand up to it. And, you know, thank you, Joe Biden, for calling out the Holocaust uh, of the Armenian, the, the, the genocide yeah. of the Armenians. Good for him. Good for him, uh, yeah. Words make a difference. Words are important. Um, and so uh, it's important for us to stand up with people, um, to be witnesses, to be allies, even accomplices if we need be, um, you know, and, and to do that work. Yeah. I, I, I saw the sign. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot more work that we have to do. Well, I mean, look, we're, it, it's time to close. This okay. is, I actually forgot. I got so interested <laughs> in this that I forgot. We're having such we, a great time. We are live streaming on yes. Facebook. So those poor uh, devils who are watching along with this, whoever they might be, uh, we've really got to uh, finish up. Yeah, and we're, we're, we're going to do this again. Yes, please. Uh, I enjoy that. Uh, you've, I, I like learned a bunch of stuff and thank you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, um, at any rate, I think next time let's get into more of this where do we go from here stuff because i i gotta tell you we have been 
chewing on this cud for years. Really, really, like giving this an awful lot of thought. And I don't have any answers that that I find satisfactory. Really. We tend to attract non-joiners. So yeah. that's a challenge. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because we, we know that when we talk to, with people, they'll say, oh, yeah, gee, I think I might be a humanist, too. That, that lines up with what I think. <laughs> See you around. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it requires a commitment, and some people aren't ready for that. Uh, we'll bring them around. We'll bring them around, Vincent. Well, I know well, we got we did we well we got to fig we got to figure it out. And at, at any rate, be, before we run too much further over, and thank really thank you again. You're very um, uh, everybody. This has been another uh, interview with uh, from from when humanists attack. We are the propaganda wing of. Uh, uh, the Humanist Theme, a 501c3, incorporated in the state of Vermont. And please subscribe, like, click the bell, pay attention to us. <laughs> we would like that very much. Take care. Farewell. <laughs>